And as you are bowing your heads in prayer, I want to ask you a question. As you're bowing your heads in prayer. This is very tricky. I know it's very tricky. I'm going to pray for the application. And I want to ask you if you want to pray for this application, if this is your application in your heart. So, do you want to pray this prayer this morning? Here it is. Dear Lord Jesus, what we really want this morning, this week, this season, this next year, is what you want for us. Help us to want what you want. Help us to desire and think about what you desire and think about. Help us to treasure what you treasure and to enjoy what you enjoy. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Turn over to Philippians 4. 4. Philippians 4 and verse 12. And and when you think of the the letter to the Philippians, you probably think of a lot of amazing verses. There are a lot of encouragement, and there's a lot of encouraging verses in the letter itself. Um, But this is probably one of the more famous ones. Look at what he says there in Philippians 4, verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What would it look like in your life to be content? What would it look like in your life to have spiritual contentment? In, in hard situations, in humbling situations, difficult, challenging situations, what would it look like to have spiritual contentment in your life? To have joy in every single season? What would it look like? Well, Paul wants to tell you, he wants to give you a secret. He wants to give you a secret in this letter about the secret of contentment and a few other secrets as well. And he is writing to you through writing to the church of Philippi. Now, the church of Philippi, you could have a a nickname for this church. And I would say the nickname of the church of Philippi is the church of the unexpected joy. The church of the unexpected joy. Paul had no expectation to see a church be planted in the city of Philippi. But it was an unexpected church, and it was an unexpected joy. How did the church of Philippi come into existence? Well, if you look over at Acts 16, if you look over at Acts 16, the church at Philippi came because Jesus said no to something Paul thought he should do. Right? You see there in chapter 16 of Acts, verse 6, the Holy Spirit did not permit Paul to go and spread the word in Asia. He for, was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Twice it says in chapter 16, 6 through 10, that Paul was forbidden to continue to work in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Instead, he crossed into modern-day Europe and started ministering in churches there, and that's how he came to the church at Philippi. It was an unexpected turn of events, and it was because 
a prayer that Jesus answered to Paul was no. Sometimes we don't think joy comes from answers of no to prayer, but look at that. There it is. Church, the church came into existence because the Lord Jesus Christ said no to Paul in one way. Why did Paul need to be thrown into jail in Philippi? If you've ever read through Acts 16, you see Paul and Silas are in jail. Why did Paul need to be thrown in jail? Well, it was so that the gospel could spread to the jailer in that jail. And that the other prisoners in that jail could hear how Paul and Silas responded to difficult situations in their life. He needed to go to jail because the gospel needed to go to jail, right? And what was Paul now saying about why he was in Rome? Well, it was because the gospel needed to go to Rome. And Paul went to Rome in chains, but the, Paul, but the gospel needed to go to Rome, even in chains. What might it look like? What might it look like for you to have contentment in all circumstances? Well, it would look like you having a transformed heart to see your entire life differently than you do already. Um, there's that song, you know, that goes like this. Hey, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I'm so embarrassed by singing in front of you. But there's a song that goes like that. But you could also add to that song other lines, right? They will know that we are Christians by our pain, by our pits, by our problems. They will know. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by the way we respond to unfortunate circumstances. And that's kind of what's going on in Paul. And that's what's going on in uh, the letter to the Philippians. By the way, the situation is right now, Paul is in prison. He's been in prison for four years. Four years. Think back four years of your life. What would happen if you were in the same spot, the same physical spot for four years? You'd get a little discouraged. That's where Paul is. He is in prison for four years since Acts 28. And the Philippians have just sent him a substantial gift of support. So he is responding to that gift with kind of a thank you note here. He's also sharing his own circumstances. And he is also wanting to exhort them to continue with him in participation in gospel ministry. So that's kind of why Paul is writing, whatever. That's why Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians. And I want you to look really quick at Philippians 1 verse 3. 1 verse 3, look at how he prays. Look at how Paul prays for the church of Philippi. I thank my God and all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you all in my heart for you are are all partakers with me of grace. Then look at what grace is. Look at what they are partakers in. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is Paul praying for here? He is praying that the Lord Jesus 
would complete the work of sanctification in these believers. See, you see it there in verse 6. He is sure that the Lord Jesus will complete the work that he has begun in them, and he is praying towards that end. How does he he pray for that? He says, he he is praying in verse 9 and verse 10 that they may be so transformed in their minds and in their hearts and in their affections that they would want the things that Jesus wants for them. That they would desire those things. That they would consider those, those aims, those ambitions, wisdom and joy. That is what he is praying for them. To be so transformed by the renewal of your mind and your heart that the desires of Christ become your desires. That is what it means to grow in sanctification. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind, as it says in Ephesians 4, right? And notice how he prays this way. In verse 9 and 11, 9 through 11 particularly, notice, first off, he prays, verse 9, that they increase in a love that is wise, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. What does it mean to have a foolish love? It means you love things that are foolish. You appreciate, desire, seek things that are foolish. And you have a foolish life because you have foolish choices in your life. What does it mean to love the things that are wise, that are discerning? It means you make wise choices. It means you have a wise life. He is, he is praying for them that they would have a wise love. Do you see that there? I am praying for you that you would love, but not just love anything. I am praying for you that you would love the things that are excellent. I'm praying that you would love the things that are full of discernment. Can we turn that off? Do you want to do that? Let's see. It'll be t- I know it'll be, it'll be too distracting if I leave this TV on. So. There we go. All right. I am praying for you that you will love the things that are wise. See that in verse 9? See that in verse 9? See that in verse 10? Um, and then notice what it produces. It produces an increase in right choices in verse 10, um, so that you may approve what is excellent. And it results, notice the result is complete fruitfulness, so that you may be filled, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You may give glory to Christ Jesus. You may experience a separation from sin. You may increase in fruitfulness in your life. And notice, it's not just the fruitfulness at the day of Christ, but it's like this fruitfulness leading up to the day of Christ. It is living a life that is full of fruitfulness spiritually. That you are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ because your life is full of fruit. So much better. It's so much better to wait for your parents to come home knowing that you've done everything that they've told you to do with excellence than fearing for your life because you know you've done none of the things that they've asked you to do with excellence, right? There is excitement, there is joy, there is anticipation. That is what Paul is praying. That is the prayer of sanctification. Uh, What does... A wise love like this look like? What is the life that is filled with a wise love look like? This is, that's my operating question. I think Paul kind of fills out that question in the rest of the letter to the Philippians. So let's look at, look at four ways of how, how this looks or what this looks like. It means basically, I mean, this is not point number one, but basically it means that you know how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means your life is worthy of the gospel. You live worthy. But, but let's look 
look at how this looks. The wise life looks like this. First off, number one, you have circumstantial joy. You have joy that is circumstantial. You have joy because and in your circumstances. That's not how I've ever actually thought about it. Um, The key term in Philippians is joy, joy and rejoicing come through 16 times in the letter itself. Um, And this is just an incredible thing to think about because of where Paul was. Four years in prison being chained maybe to a guard constantly. And yet he writes to somebody else and joy just slips out everywhere. You want to know the real you, what's going on in the real heart of you, what slips out when you're talking to people. Joy and rejoicing slip out. Now, there's probably an intentional contrast that we should make here between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is dependent on our circumstances. We are happy because our circumstances are happy. Joy kind of rises above our circumstances, right? It's not dependent on our circumstances because it's fixed on something that is outside of our circumstances. That is our position in God and who Christ is. That's where joy is fixed. You can have joy in every circumstance because you are in Christ. And, And once again, Paul is just just flowing, flowing with joy throughout this letter. He says in one eighteen, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He, he rejoices in 3 and 4 in the Philippians themselves. In chapter 2, uh, verse 18, he says, you should be glad and you should rejoice with me. I'm rejoicing in all circumstances and you should rejoice as well. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. Right? Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Paul is flowing with joy and he is calling them to rejoice. Have joy because you have a security, you have a position, you have a citizenship that is above your earthly circumstances and situation. You should persist in joy because you have a condition that persists regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what kind of chains are in your life, regardless of what kind of divisions are around you, regardless of what kind of opposition is against you, even regardless of persecution that you are facing, you have joy that is secure because it is secure in Christ. But that's not the only reason that Paul has joy. Think about it. He doesn't just have joy because because of something that is detached from his circumstances. He says he has joy because of his circumstances. Right? I want you to know, brothers... Verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I have joy in what is happening to me because my imprisonment is for Christ. And regardless of what happens to me, I have joy. But even in what happens to me, I have joy. Uh, 1 verse 12 says this. Notice, I, I like how he says, what has happened to me? Do you realize that in those three words, he is summarizing all of Acts 21 through 28? What happened in Acts 21 through 28? Well, he was 
harassed by mobs. He was mistreated. He was, uh, try, it was a, there was an attempt to murder him. He was shipwrecked. He's been in prison for four years, and he summarizes it just with, you know what's happened to me? I, if, if that happened to you, would you summarize it so quickly, so shortly? It's almost as if he's trying to get to something else. I'm listening to this sermon by H.B. Charles. He said Paul wasn't as concerned about what happened to him as about what happened to what happened to him, right? Uh, Paul's life was so tied up in the advance of the gospel that he was more interested in how his circumstances could promote and, and increase the gospel being spread. And as we've seen in Acts over and over again, right? The gospel is unstoppable. The work that Jesus is continuing to do in this world is unstoppable. And so, what does that mean? If you are tied, if your joy is attached to the spread of the gospel in the world, through your prayer, through your activity of your life, you have joy always. Because the gospel is going to continue to advance. Even in your difficult circumstances, it's an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Regardless of how your life turns out, Regardless of people's opinions, regardless of whatever sentence you have in your life, you have joy. Because your aim is the furtherance of the gospel, not your own comfort or your own situation. Look at what he says in verse 21 of chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Notice Paul's focus is so centered on the gospel and the good of others and his ability to be servants to others for the gospel that he concludes, he concludes, you know what, I don't know how this is going to end, but I think I know what Jesus is going to do here. He is going to keep me around here. So I can do spiritual good for you a little bit longer. Notice that's just the way Paul thinks. His life is tied up in service to others and the furtherance of the gospel. And so he, he kind of concludes that's probably what Jesus is going to do. And he can have joy in that. He is content in the sufficiency of Christ in all circumstances. And then the lesson here is if you count it a joy to see the gospel advance, Every circumstance can be a cause of joy in your life. If, if you are all about seeing the gospel move forward, every circumstance Christ can use sovereignly for the furtherance of the gospel. You can have joy in every single circumstance. That's what Paul is doing. A wise love actually views the hard circumstances with joy because you just never know what Christ might be up to. You, you, you can even have joy in difficulty because you know maybe Christ is setting me up to speak God's gospel to someone in my life through this hard circumstance. Have a circumstantial joy. Number two, have a humble focus. Have a humble focus. Paul's goal in life, he begins to share with them, and he also begins to share what their goal in life should be. As he exhorts them to follow along with him, verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Let your manner of life be worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Have a humble focus in your life. Live a life worthy of the gospel. The word there, a manner of life worthy of the gospel, is it could be translated live as a good citizen. Live as a worthy citizen. And this kind of language, this kind of idea, actually is everywhere in Philippians. Uh, the church in, in Philippi was, of course, a part of the city of Philippi, and the city of Philippi was actually very proud of their Roman citizenship. They are very proud of it. And they uh, were very careful to walk in a manner worthy of their citizenship. That's kind of why they threw Paul in prison, and that's also kind of why they were afraid when they threw Paul in prison, because they realized that they had just thrown in prison a Roman citizen. That doesn't look good for a city that's trying to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? They, they knew what it meant to be good Roman citizens. And so Paul kind of twists it on them. Hey, walk in a manner worthy of your citizenship in heaven. Have a humble focus. What does he say about a humble focus? You see there in the second half of verse 27. So that whether I may come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you uh, uh, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for faith in the gospel the first way you have a humble focus is and and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to have the same aim and you know, the same spirit the same mind right you are moving in the same direction as one another we all want the same gospel advanced we have the same aim, the same mind. Another way you have a humble focus, you walk in a manner worthy of the Gospels, you remind yourself of what you deserve. What do I actually deserve? Because I don't deserve this. I don't deserve any of the good things that come my way because of Christ. Matter of fact, look at what he says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you think that way? It has been granted to me. Everything that I get because I am in Christ is undeserved to me. Faith, repentance, I don't deserve. But those have been granted to me. Not only to belief, but also suffering for the name of Christ. I, I don't deserve that either. I, I deserve none of the good things that come my way because I am in Christ. That is a manner worthy of the gospel. And another way you live in a, a manner worthy of the gospel is to have the mind of Christ. And this gets us to chapter 2. Notice what he says there in chapter 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How, how do you have the mind of Christ? That's how you have it. You don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. As a matter of fact, then he, he goes off on this amazing explanation of the humility that Christ has shown towards you and for you. And you know the section well. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And just, just, just break down a few of those words, right? Verse 6, he was in the form of God. Was. He, he existed in the continual existence of God. He was continually this way. And then he uses the word form. That doesn't mean he was existing continually in eternity past in the external appearance 
like God, but it means he was existing forever, continually in equality with God, because that's what he says. He had equality with God. He enjoyed full the full outward manifestation of the divine nature. He was fully God. He, he enjoyed that continually in eternity past. In eternity past, the Son of God was fully God. First uh, John one, or sorry, John one one says this: The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse fourteen of John one, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God. He was with God, and he was God. And then verse six goes on: He did not count equality that. Equality that he enjoyed with God, a thing to be grasped. Of course, he's referring there to Christ's total divine nature, equality with God. But then notice how he says Jesus didn't hold on to that. He didn't grasp those things. Grasp means to hold tight to something, to cling to something. Usually it's used in a selfish manner, right? I'm holding on to something because I want it, because I must have it. I must hang on to it. I must keep it. And there's an irony here, right? Because of all people, Christ himself should have grasped these things, right? He he existed as God, praised, worshipped, holy, righteous. He should have grasped these things. He would have continued if if he had not humbled himself to become a man. He would have continued to be God, worthy of praise, had he not. But he didn't grasp these things. He didn't grasp the things that he should have grasped. You could almost say. And there's a further irony in my mind, right? You are saved in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus did not have a mind like you. He did not grasp onto his rights, the things he demanded, he could have demanded. And and the irony continues, right? Uh, If he who had every right to hold on to his position didn't grasp it in order to serve and save you, how can you? grasp, hold on to any rights that you have in your life, right? That is the irony. You have no right to grasp what you believe to be your rights at all, because Christ, who had every right to grasp, did not. And you do not either. Verse 7 goes on, right? It's amazing. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. That doesn't mean he gave up being God. It doesn't mean he gave up his divine knowledge, divine power, Anything like that, if he would have done that, he would have ceased to be God. It wasn't like Superman who gave up his, his amazing superpowers to be with Lois Lane. It wasn't like the little mermaid Ariel who gave up her mermaid ways to be with Eric. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was Christ, in becoming fully man, willingly chose to set aside all of his rights, his privileges, his prerogatives in order to serve you. He willingly chose to uh, not to 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 not be seen as who he really was. He really he he willingly chose to cease to demand the position that he could have demanded. He willingly chose to be seen as a humble servant and the most humble of servants, right? Not just a human, but someone who was crucified. He made himself a nobody. 
And he not only humbled himself, he humbled himself to the lowest degree. Or you could say it like this, what it was he emptying? It was, sub, it was subtraction by addition. That's what it says in theology books, right? He, he subtracted from himself, but not actually from removing any part of his divine nature, but by taking on your humiliating, humble nature. And this, this confronts our pride, right? Pride and demanding your rights, when you see it in this light, when you think about what Christ has done for you, eh, that's a grievous sin. It's a grievous sin in comparison to the way Christ humbled himself to save you. You are saved today because Christ didn't think like you, and that should humble you a lot. So we should have the same aim, right? We should, we should continually be reminding ourselves of what we don't deserve. We should have this mind of Christ. And then he goes on there in Philippians 2, and we need to move forward quicker than I would like, but he, he goes on to continue to say, you know, be assured in sanctification, and you see that in chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? You should, you should work out your salvation. You should seek out sanctification, but you should seek out sanctification with this note of assurance, of confidence, of joy, even in your life, because you know that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then you see here in Philippians 2, then Paul gives kind of examples of a humble focus. Now, obviously, he himself is an example of a humble focus, isn't he? But then he also gives Timothy as an example of a humble focus. In chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. And Timothy is the opposite of that, right? He seeks others' interests. He is like Christ. And then, of course, Epaphroditus, who was the one who delivered the letter to Paul, or the gift to Paul, Paul is also giving him high praise as well. He basically almost killed himself to show love towards Paul. And now, the, the point of this, the point of this humble focus, right? If you count it a joy of, in being a service to others, you will never lack opportunities for joy in your life. If you count it a joy to be of service to others, you will never lack an opportunity for joy in your life. That joy that comes through a humble focus. Moving on very quickly, chapter 3 talks about this. What else, what, what other way... What other way can we have a wise love? We have spiritual maturity, security. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Right? There's a safety in this. There's a security. This is safety. This is how you have spiritual maturity, security. Uh, What do you do to have spiritual maturity, security? Uh, Basically, you have joy in what you have been given. Paul goes on there in chapter 3, 2, all the way down through 11 to talk about how he has joy in the fact that his righteousness before God is an alien righteousness and has nothing to do with what he has done at all, but he stands before God in a righteousness, verse 9, that is from God and dependent on faith. There's great security in that, right? There is great 
spiritual maturity, security in that, right? I, I am not working in order to please God. I am working because I am absolutely pleasing to God in Christ Jesus. That is security. But also notice what he says as well. You also should have joy in what you're after as well. Verse 12 through 21 talk about this as well. This is how maturity looks. Verse 14 talks about it's pressing, it's laboring, it's striving, it's earnestly seeking. There is a new motivation that comes in your life when you are mature. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, that is perfection, or am already perfect, but I press to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's two types of believers in the world that think they're mature but are not. The one is the one that thinks they're mature because of all the good things they have done in their life. And the other type of believer thinks they're mature because of all the good things they haven't done in their life. I don't trust in my works. I don't trust in works at all. I, matter of fact, live in complete security in who God is towards me in Christ. And I, I don't even try to change. That's maturity. That's actually immaturity. Uh, true maturity is a mixture of the both in their right or order. It is a hundred percent resting in the righteousness of Christ, and it's a hundred percent unresting, desiring to put on Christ's likeness yourself. It is an unresting quest. This is spiritual maturity security. When you have this dual focus, I am a hundred percent right before God, and I am a hundred percent after Christ's likeness. That is what spiritual maturity security looks like. But then one last way that Paul kind of closes the letter. Remember, he's, he's praying for them that they'll have a wise love. He wants them to have all these things. He wants them to have this perspective of maturity. He wants them to have this humility. He wants them to have this circumstantial joy. But there's one more thing that he says. Have situational sufficiency. Be sufficient in every circumstance, every situation. Have situational sufficiency. Three situations in which Christ is sufficient. Paul lays it out there in Philippians 4. And thankfully, we already talked about this on Thursday night, so hopefully we can zoom through it real quick, right? Uh, First off, he says you should have situational sufficiency in personal disputes, in personal disagreements with fellow believers. You see that in chapter 2 or chapter 4, 2 through 3, right? There are these two women that are having trouble with one another. Matter of fact, this is the only real hint of trouble in the Philippian church that Paul addresses. These women, though, are gospel laborers with Paul. It says there in 3, they are fellow Christians with Paul. Verse 3, 4, but they need help from another. They have situational sufficiency. Uh, Also, you, you should have situational sufficiency in anxiety. How do you deal with disagreements with other believers? You deal with them through pursuing active means of peace in your own life, in your own heart. And we talked about this. What do you do with anxious thoughts? You don't just forget about them, try to ignore them. Paul says you actively put on these ingredients of God's peace and presence. You, as he says in verse 4, choose rejoicing. Rejoicing is not something you just constantly are in. It is something that we're commanded to do, so therefore it is something we can obey or disobey. We choose rejoicing in everything. Secondly, we, we choose to have an attitude that is small. That's what he's saying there, right? 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be gracious. Be small. A small person is someone that is not easily offended, right? They are slow to being offended because they're not a big head. It's not all about them, right? They are a small person. Be small. Think prayerfully, verse 6, right? In everything, with thanksgiving. Prayer is the opposite of anxiety. This is how you deal with tensions, disagreements. Think truthfully. Verse 8, true, that is what is biblical. And notice what all the things that flow from truth uh, and true biblical thinking comes from. It's honorable. You think about what's just, what's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. Those all flow from thinking truthfully. And then you follow the best examples. You basically have situational uh, sufficiency in your personal disagreements because you know how to pursue peace. You know how to have peace in your own heart and in your own life and not be ruled by anxiety. Therefore, you don't have disagreements with your fellow believers. But then, one of my favorite parts of the entire letter, and this is kind of where I was driving at the entire time, the final situation that you need sufficiency in is you need complete contentment. Complete contentment in your situation. Paul now addresses, notice this, he now addresses, in, at this place in his letter, he now addresses his personal need. And what is his personal need? I don't have any needs. But you, you know a lot about somebody uh, based on when they talk about their own needs, right? You know a lot about them. And notice where Paul talks about his needs. Right at the end. Actually, he says it like paragraph after paragraph after he says finally. So this is clearly like, this is like PS, 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 way at the very end of the letter, right? You notice a lot about somebody. You know a lot about somebody, especially in the issue of money, based on where it comes up. And, and he says this in chapter 4, 13, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he says in, in chapter four nineteen, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the popular interpretation of that is Christ Jesus will supply all my greeds. Everything I want, Christ will give me. If I want to run a race, it's him who strengthens me, right? You see this all the time on every single sports anything, that if it's it's remotely spiritual, they always attach that verse to it. But it's actually not talking about that. And that's actually diminishing what Paul is saying here. He is saying much more. He is saying, he is saying you can have complete contentment in every situation. When you're losing the game, you can have complete contentment. When you're poor, you can have complete contentment. When you're spent, when you're tired, when you're in chains, you can have a wise love that has complete contentment in your situation. Notice what he says. The first thing about this contentment. It's not about getting everything you want, but it's about the trust that you will get everything you need. Right? If you are in Christ, you can have trust and confidence that I will get everything I need. Not everything I want, but everything I need. What if Paul would have got what he wanted and not gone to the church at Philippi? He wouldn't have gotten everything that he needed, right? But Paul was certain that he, it wasn't about what he wanted, but, what about, but, but about what he needed. And he knew that in Christ, I'll get all that I need. Matter of fact, in verse 19, it says, according to his riches in glory. And I think it's very important to remind yourself that that's not out of. That's not out of his riches, but it's according to. Christ is, is showing off his riches. He's, he's showing off his wealth. This is an abundance of provision. 
It's not everything you want. It's everything you need. And you know what? When you start thinking that way, your mind starts changing. Your heart starts changing. Suddenly you discover complete contentment because you discover that everything you need is everything you want. Right? Everything Christ is providing for me is everything that I want in life. These things that I used to think I wanted, I don't want. I want what Christ wants for me. That is contentment. Oh, by the way, what is, spirit, what is a definition of spiritual discontentment? Spiritual discontentment is saying this. Christ's purpose, Christ's condescending sacrifice, Christ's condescending provision in my life are not good enough, are not good enough to give me joy today. That is discontentment. Contentment is saying Christ's condescending sacrifice, Christ's condescending provision, and Christ's purpose in this world is everything that I want in this world. That is spiritual contentment. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we pray that you would be honored in our life and in our desire and in our loves and in what we want. And I pray that that would show forth in our contentment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.